off. So let's get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about order and worship. The first thing is that you see is prayer and intercession, and then the role that women have in the ministry. Today I'm going to talk about a message that I've never even preached on before, which is, can women be in the ministry? Amen? And so, let me just tell you right now off top, it's no. There's going to be some changes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Amen. That was just funny. I, just could, I should have let it set a little bit longer, but I couldn't. It was just too much. Okay. The answer is yes, by the way. So I asked people to tune in by webcast. Hopefully they're watching this, and we know people will watch this video. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and onward. We're going to read the whole chapter. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And everybody said amen. Okay, so let's just talk about this first part of prayer so that we could get into the part of women in the ministry. The reason why I won't spend a lot of time on the aspect of prayer and intercession is I believe we had a great message on that when it came to tears in our eyes with the one with Jeremiah when we talked about weeping and praying, and we did that that day. And there's a great message on that, so go back and listen to it. Uh, but here, basically, he says, I urge in, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. This gives us the idea that there's different types of prayer. I believe there's about seven major types of prayer. The first type of prayer is request and prayer. I believe all those are the same words. Uh, prayer means to supplicate or request. But then intercession, I believe, is a different type of prayer uh, than just supplicating. I believe intercession is taking on the burden, and it comes with grieving. And, and sometimes, like the Bible says, sounds and utterances that uh, no one really understands, but it comes through you. And then thanksgiving, I believe, is another type of prayer. So I believe there's three out of the seven types of prayer mentioned right there. The first one, requests and prayers, meaning we're asking God. God, I'm asking you to save people. I'm asking you to bless this nation. God, I'm asking you to do these different things. The next one is intercession. Intercession is, God, I will carry the burden. Place on me their pain. Place on me their suffering so I can bring it to you. To intercede is to be like a, a mediator between two people. So we don't need the priest to do it. Each believer can intercede and be a priest unto God for a nation, for a, a group of people, for your family. And it's more than just asking. It's pleading, and it's taking on the suffering, and it comes with great emotion. And you see that in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. And one of the people that in the past that had it greatly was John Knox, um, uh, the one that worked with uh, Finney. 
His name was uh, Father So-and-so. I can't remember. Does anybody remember off top? Finney's prayer worker that was an intercessor was awesome at that. Okay, so there you have intercessor. I'll just say Father Thomas. I'll look it up later if you want to know it, but I, his name just totally slipped my mind. And then lastly, thanksgiving. We're not just asking and we're not just pleading. We're also thanking God for all that he's done. So we're saying, God, I ask you to save a nation. I intercede for this nation. Give me a burden for them. Tears coming down our eyes. And then at some point, Lord, I thank you for this nation. And I thank you for what you're doing in me and through me to reach this nation. Does everybody understand that? And you do that for kings and all in authority first. Why do we do that? So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. So we should always be praying for our nation, always be praying for our government officials first, because if they're wicked, then wickedness will oppress the people. But if they're godly, godliness will uplift the people, okay? So that's why we're always praying for the kings and those in authority. We need to remember to do that. It doesn't even say pray for the church first. It says pray for the governments and authority. So that even convicts me now that I pray for the nations. We need to remember always before us to pray for their governments, okay? So remember that as you pray because the governments affect the way the ordinary people live. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Why is it good and pleases God our Savior? Because he wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we don't have time to disprove Calvinism right here other than just giving you that verse. The plain interpretation of Scripture is that God wants all men to be saved, period. There is no such thing as limited atonement and the things that, that Calvinists have made up. It has come through people reading into text and coming up with their own ideas. In the early church history, there was no Calvinism. Anybody who believed in that type of a predestination were, were Gnostics, and they were not Christian philosophers. These were a cult that believed in things like the way Calvinists believe today. It's always been the desire of the church and the people in the church to take these plain reading of scriptures and to believe that Jesus wants all men to be saved. So why are we praying for kings and those in authority? Why are we praying for them? Because God wants all men to be saved. That's as plain as, as it can be. Does God want governors in our, in our nation to be saved? Does he want our president to be saved? Does he want your next door neighbor? Yes, he wants them to be saved. And I don't even have time to get into it, but Calvinists would try to come up with two wills of God. He wills one thing, and kind of it's more of a wish, and then he wills the other thing, which is actually what he does. But that would make God schizophrenic. There aren't two wills in God. He wishes all men to be saved, period. It means what it says. Now, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This takes away any mediator that would mediate your salvation. And that is why we're not Catholics. We're Protestants. We protest the Catholic Church because they try to place men between you and God for your salvation. Now, can I pray for you? Can I pray for nations? Yes. But I am not the source of their salvation. And that's the difference between us praying the way we pray and the way Roman Catholic priests and their clergy pray is they really believe that if they don't give you the communion, if if they don't pardon your sins, if they don't have a part in your salvation, you are not saved, okay? So when it comes to salvation, it belongs to Christ alone. And that's why we read into this verse all of the Old Testament scriptures that show the angel of the Lord. We call those Christophanies that Jesus is showing up and walking with us. It's Jesus walking with us in the cool of the day. It's Jesus showing up on the plains of Mamre with Abraham in Genesis 18. It's Jesus that shows up and helps Hagar and Ishmael. It's Jesus that comes 
comes to the burning bush and speaks to the uh, speaks to Moses. It's Jesus who passes by Moses on the mountaintop. It's Jesus that follows in front of the uh, the camp of Israel. That's the angel of the Lord that will go before them. It's Jesus who shows up in the time of Judges to Gideon. It's Jesus that comes to Isaiah and the prophets. It's Jesus that visits Ezekiel after the time of the captivity, and he appears in his glory. It's always Jesus. There's only one mediator between man and God, and it's Christ Jesus. Now, it says here the man Christ Jesus because we know that he came as a man, and that's where it says, as you continue to read it right here, that who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. So he came and took on flesh and showed himself to us in the proper time. Until that time, he was a mystery. So anybody who looks to the Old Testament can see Jesus concealed, and whoever looks in the New Testament for Jesus sees Jesus revealed. You understand, you'll see Jesus concealed in the mystery, in the angel of the Lord. He just comes and goes. He speaks as the Lord himself. But then in the New Testament, he's revealed. You see who he is. You can touch and handle him, as Paul, uh, as uh, Peter said and John said. We have touched him. We have seen him. And we know that he's real, so he came at that particular time. And then verse 7, Paul applies it to himself. And he says, for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. Like we hear in that Christmas song, hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels. Herald means to proclaim. So Paul says, I am a proclaimer and an apostle. So Adam, his job, Paul's, was to go out and tell you the daily news of Jesus. Just like we say the daily herald as a newspaper, Paul's job was to go out and tell everybody what Jesus was doing day to day, and especially what Jesus had done when it came to salvation. And we're still telling that story. Amen? That's not old news, amen? And he was an apostle. That means he was one sent out, apostolion. Somebody sent out to do what? Plant churches and uh, start the kingdom, uh, start, you know, churches and, and branch out the kingdom of God from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other most parts of the world. And as he's writing here to Timothy, Timothy is one of his spiritual sons that is now taking on the church that he was pastoring, uh, that he had planted in Ephesus, where he had spent three years. That was the longest place that he had ever been was Ephesus. And that reminds us of the message from uh, chapter 1, where it says, know who you are, know what you came to do. So Paul says, man, I know who I am. I'm a herald and apostle. And that's why, Timothy, you're in my life, because I came to start churches, and you're one of the men that we used to start churches with. And you're running the, the Ephesus church. Okay, and he says, I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. That's good that Paul didn't lie. Amen. Because liars go to hell according to Revelation. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So he saw his calling was to Gentiles. Everybody has a calling. Your calling may be to the high schools. Your calling may be to Macedonia, to Europe, to Latin America. Your calling may be to Africa. Your calling may be to Chicago. He knew who he was called to. It was a specific group of people, the Gentiles. And he said, I'm there to teach him the true faith, which is truth and uh, true faith is the faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that he died, buried, and rose again from the dead, teaching men to, you know, repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in him. Then in verse 8, he says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. So here you see the tradition of raising your hands when you pray. This has always been a tradition in the, the Jewish people, raising their hands in prayer. And he says that he wants men to do this instead of fighting with their hands. So everybody raise up their hands like they do in India and go, hallelujah. Say it again. Say hallelujah. There you go. That's how you raise up your hands and praise the Lord. There it is. Now just do that in prayer and seek the Lord. Uh, worship is a form of prayer. Praise is a form of prayer. It's all communicating to God so it can come under that general sense of prayer. 
Verse 9, I also want women, now here's where we get into the women discussion, okay? I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. That just means with respect to themselves, to be dignified, to, uh, to not be loose, to not be uh, perverted. With decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Okay, so look at your neighbor and see if they have any of those things on. Did any women have any gold on? Does any women have any braided hair today? Does any women have any expensive clothes on? Let's see. We got Aristophel. Is that how you pronounce it? Aeropostle. Then we got some expensive clothes. Nancy has her little expensive clothes on. She has jewelry, which is white gold, right? You have your white gold on, so I'm picking on my wife. You have white gold. So, okay, so we're all disqualified, right? All the women are, especially. But let's go into this. Now, verse 10, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay, so here's the first thing that we learn about women. The first thing that we learn about women in, in the time of the Bible is that they were not allowed to have places in the Jewish temple. A bar mitzvah boy or a boy who had turned into man like how Jesus was presented at the temple with his parents. That young child had more rights than his mother, than a grown woman. A child, a male child, had more rights in the temple. He could read the scriptures. He could partake in the, in the, in the temple prayers. But the synagogue prayers, you know, where they began to meet after the exiles, after they are exiled. And so what we see here is the first thing is that women did not hold the same place that they do now in our culture. Now, we can get into this whole discussion about culture and how women has, their roles have changed. But let's not get into that right now. Let's just understand this. In this culture... Women, when it dealt with religion, and it's the same culture in Ephesus that they had in Corinth, where Paul mentions this again, they did two specific things. Number one, when they were involved in religion, they were mostly a sexual, uh, they played a sexual role, okay? So when they were involved in religion, like uh, we see with the, the goddess Diana, who was in Ephesus, the women were prostitutes in that temple. So the first thing that we see is that Paul is addressing people who are coming to the Lord, these women, from possibly being temple prostitutes. The second thing that we're dealing with is that even though the Greek-Roman culture, because remember Rome had conquered Greece, and, but, and they, say, they say Rome conquered Greece militarily, but Greece conquered Rome culturally. And that's where you see all of the gods of the Greeks became the gods of the Romans. All of the philosophy of the Greeks became the philosophy of the Romans. Okay, So number two is that even though the Greeks and the Romans allowed women to have more of a public role, in the New Testament times, women in Jewish synagogues were not allowed to have that. So here's what you see. You see women being saved that come from pagan backgrounds that probably were prostitutes, and you see women now interacting within Jewish communities. There, there's the answer to that. Just get that in your mind. Pagan background, Jewish communities. So, for example, if today you were to go to India and be in an Indian community, the women would probably wear the sari and cover their head. Now, that is a Indian Hindu tradition, nothing to do with Christianity. But women would probably, you women here, would do that because you would not want to offend them by doing that. So this is where we get the idea 
that Paul is now going to make concessions at the cost of women's liberty. It did cost them some liberty at this time, but he's going to make concessions so that they can interact with Jewish people. That's the first thing, or the second thing. And then the first thing is the description that he gives here is the description of what people would look like as temple prostitutes. Now, when I think of this, I think of kind of like this gypsy look or like this tarot card reader look. And I don't know if it's just a demonic spirit that manifests itself that way or if these women in modern times are still trying to look like that. But when I worked in New Orleans, you would see the women who would do the tarot card reading, heavy lipstick, lots of eyeliner, lots of those types of colors on their faces, lots of braided hair, lots of jewelry. Do you you know what I'm talking about? Can you kind of picture this madame type of thing, madam, whatever, and she's going to tell your future? That's what they're talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. When you see a woman today with braided hair, do you think to yourself she is a prostitute? No, you don't think that to yourself. When you see a woman today with gold, pearl, or expensive clothes, do you think to yourself the only way she could have got that is if she was a temple prostitute? No. So the, the application to us is not to take this verbatim. And you might say, well, Pastor, I thought we were supposed to take the, the Bible literally. In the places where we can take it literally. And there's reasons why we shouldn't always take literal things, uh, I mean, uh, these types of things literal. Like, for example, when Paul says greet each other with the holy kiss, he says it the same way like he does here. Brothers, greet each other with the holy kiss. How many of you men are kissing each other right now when you greet each other? You're not. So why don't we literally take that, greet each other with the holy kiss, you know? Why don't we literally do that? Because we know that's within culture. So why don't people take this with the women and take it within culture? Because in their mind, they're doing a disservice to the Word of God. But the problem is, when they say, well, we're just not going to let, and, and there's so many variants to this that different churches take. Some churches say, well, the women can pray, and the women can be public in the ministry, but they just can't be an elder or a deacon or, you know, a pastor, you know. But, you know, this doesn't make any sense, because as we get to the next scripture, it talks about not having authority over a man. In the Jewish sense, after you were bar mitzvah, you were considered a man. So if we have our children teaching Sunday school to, to children that are getting to that age of 14 and 15, then they're disqualified from that. And then if we took it biblically into the culture, then that means none of the people in the church could have any authority over a man because it doesn't qualify it. So that means no women could be bosses, no women could be school teachers, no women could be professors wherever there's a man present. But that doesn't make any sense. So what is Paul doing? He's speaking to a culture where women had been temple prostitutes, and a lot of them are now coming, and they're wearing these types of clothes, and those are sending the signals to everybody else, these are prostitutes. And he's saying, don't do things that prostitutes do. And so that's the application to us. Now, how do we say a, see a prostitute today? In a high mini skirt, right, with maybe long nails and seductive makeup? So it's the same thing to you women today. Don't do that. Don't wear high miniskirts. Don't wear seductive makeup. Don't do things to accentuate your body. That is the application. It's different for our culture because gold and braided hair and pearls and gold mean nothing to us to show indecency. Does that make sense? And the next thing is 
We're not living in a Jewish culture where women had to cover their heads, sit outside or in another section of the synagogue, and couldn't even talk in the synagogue. So before people start saying, well, we need to tell the women they can't do this in the church, if you want to take it literally, that means the women have to cover themselves, sit in another section, and they cannot talk. Because that's what you're about ready to hear, right? So there's no two ways about it. Either we take it in the culture of pagan women acting as prostitutes, being told not to dress that way, and being in a Jewish community, or we take it all and put it into our culture. And I guarantee you, out of all the churches that I've seen try to criticize us because we allow women to preach and teach, they have no right to do so because they themselves don't follow it. Because here you go. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? Say amen. Because here it goes, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I was arguing, uh, debating with Matt Slick from uh, Carm Ministries, and this, blam, this lambasted him. This, this, this blasted him out the water because he said, well, quietness there just means, you know, to be, you know, to be respectful. No, it doesn't. It means to be silent. The King James says silent. Thayer's lexicon interprets interprets the application here because quiet can mean humble. It can mean just to be, you know, be a quiet person, be a humble person, not necessarily not talking. But that is not the way Thayer's Greek lexicon puts it, and he got drilled. Listen to the debate. There's no way around it. He kept saying, I have another resource that says differently. He never showed it to me because it doesn't exist. And I talked to them after the conversation, and it rocked him. And if he's listening, I'll debate you again on it. It's done. This word, you read it in the King James, quietness, it means silence. So I, a woman should learn in silence and full submission. So are we going to take that literally? If, if somebody says, well, we have to take that literally, we don't uh, take into account the culture. This, let's say somebody says, well, this is not the same as greet each other with a holy kiss. That's optional, but this is something we have to do. Then you have to understand. The woman cannot talk here. In this church, she cannot talk. She cannot talk. They could not talk in the synagogue. I don't, I don't, I mean, it doesn't matter who you ask and talk to. This is the way it was. They could not talk. They weren't even allowed to be in the inner courts of the temple. See, you you know the difference between a synagogue and a temple. There's only one temple, but the synagogues were all the places that they met. The synagogues didn't have all the things the temple had, you know. It didn't have... The, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant and all those different things. There's only one of that, right? So even in their synagogues, they could not talk. So once again, why do I feel Paul is saying this? Paul is saying this because, as we see in Corinth, same thing here, these women who were prostitutes in the temple a lot of them had the gift of prophecy, like what I was trying to describe to you. These tarot card readers, these, these madams, you know, that you would go see, like I see one by my haircutting place on Irving and Narragansett. And they would disrupt the meeting with their prophecies. And so Paul has the right. This is his right. He is the apostle. He is the pastor of these churches. He makes the call. He says, these women, you guys here, you got to learn quietness. We're not going to let you talk. So if you were at Paul's church... And you were in that day, a woman could not talk. So let's not try to change it, or let's not try to make Paul saying, well, I do let them talk, and I do let them do the, no. Paul did not let them talk in his church, in this church here. And then it says now, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. 
And then right here, you know, I've had people say, well, you see, it's just she can't teach a man, but she can teach another woman, or she can come and pray during the service. No, no, no. Verse verse 11 is separate from verse 12. She, he says, first of all, in, the, in, in learning, they cannot do anything but listen. So that means they can never go out and then teach and then pray and do any of that. When it comes to the service and to the learning, they have to be quiet. Then when it comes to anything they do in life, anything they do in life, a woman cannot have authority over a man. She must be silent. So what he was saying is, this is not the way we do it as Jewish people, and we're not going to turn off the Jewish people by trying to win the pagan people. Now you say, when did he ever make concessions before? You remember Galatians? And he said, don't be circumcised. And he says, those who get circumcised should just emasculate themselves. Do you guys remember that? Well, what ends up happening? Galatians is, is probably the first book written of the New Testament. It comes before the Gospels. It comes before all the other books. Galatians is believed to be the first book written in our New Testament. Well, you go along further, and what does he do? He circumcised Timothy, and he circumcises Titus. Why does he do that? And if you read about the story of where Paul gets arrested, how does Paul get arrested? Because he made vows, he shaved his head and his beard, and he goes to the Jewish temple, and they think he's bringing Gentiles into the Jewish temple, but really it's Titus and other people that he had circumcised. So what's the point? The point is Paul became a Jew to a Jew to reach Jews and became a Greek to the Greek to reach Greeks. But when he went to these places, he reached both Jews and Greeks. And whenever a Jew and a Greek were together, he gave the more legalistic stance. The, he, he said, you know, if one stumbles, then the one who's making the other one stumble needs to change. He gave the command to people to follow the more stricter of the two um, of the disagreements. So, for example, when the pagans got together with the Jews, if the Jew says this offends us, he didn't take the side of the Greeks and say, well, you guys, uh, Jews, you just need to let them be. and let them. No, he took the side of the Jews. And he said, no, okay, if you're going to be around the Jewish congregation, you're going to be around these people, then you do need to be quiet. And then you can't teach. And then you need to sit here with full submission. And then when you go outside in the world, we don't want you to have authority over a man. So that means they couldn't be a boss. That means they couldn't be a professor. That means they couldn't be a teacher. Now, is there still some cultures today around the world where that's true? Yes. And if you are going to be a missionary there, you might have to enact that same thing. You might have to say, okay, women, when you come here to the church, these tribal leaders are not going to really want you to talk, so you just sit over here, remain silent. We'll just talk to the men. And then, as it says in Corinthians, and then when you go home, you can ask your husbands what it is. And then maybe you can have your own women's Bible studies. You may work in tribal areas where you have to do that. That's up to you. That's what Paul is saying. Now, either we take it all literally or we take it all and say it's culture. Why do I say take it all as culture? Because I don't live in that culture. I can explain to you why women's lib is the way it is. I can show you the good and the bad and how Christians did help liberate women, allow them to vote and get jobs and all these things we take for granted. But I don't have time. I'm already late and I haven't even got to the message yet. 
Literally, this is the introduction. I'm, I, the first point is I wanted to exegete the scripture, then I have the message. I, I, I'm being honest with you. 1230 is not happening today. You get two weeks of break. Amen. So when we look at this scripture, we either say this is a cultural statement that Paul is using with a specific group of people and circumstances that he has, or we take it all. And once again, in my debate with Matt Slick and other people that disagree with this, they don't take it all. And then they want to say to us, we need to be more like them. No. If you don't take it all, let us apply it the way we feel best to apply it. Because that's what they do. And the, and the, the most popular version of this you see right now is Baptist churches. And what the Baptist churches do is they'll say, women can be Sunday school teachers, women can sing in the choir, women can lead worship, they can do the announcements in the church, they can sing the songs, but they can't be the preachers. They can't preach. And then some will say if they do preach, it's got to be just to the women. But that's just, you know, like I said, there's different variations. But you would never hear a woman come to these, and that's not all Baptist church, I'm just saying this is where it's most popular right now, like John Piper's church and... Uh, uh, you know, this church out here, Harvest and New Life and these different churches. Moody, Moody believes this. Moody Bible Institute. Go to their website. You'll see exactly what they believe. It's exa- okay, so Moody Institute, churches like this. So you'll never see a woman come preach in chapel at a Moody Bible college. If they do, then what they may be saying is that she would be speaking to the women, not to the men in the audience. And sometimes if they do speak to the whole audience, they'll say it's not on doctrinal issues or it's not in a governmental sense. It's just in a knowledge sense. And once, I, once again, they, they, it becomes so hypocritical from that point on. But, but that's, this is what we're talking about. And what they'll say is, is that what it's talking about is that basically a woman just cannot teach a man. That's all this is really saying is that a woman can't teach. But that is not what it's saying. It says in the very beginning... Let's exegete it properly, and then we'll move on. It says, first of all, she needs to learn in silence and full submission, period. So let's just get, I mean, before we go to verse 13, let's get verse 12. Verse 12 says, you're going to be quiet. Did they, now, let's see, did my, is my interpretation fit with the Jewish context? Exactly with the Jewish context. Now, verse uh, 12, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Does it say just in the church? No, everything she does, everywhere she goes, and especially in the church. So what can she do? She cannot teach or have authority over a man, period. So that means you cannot teach, uh, Sue Ellen could not teach Ellie how to change a tire on his car if your dad taught you how to do it and he didn't know it. You couldn't teach him that. You couldn't have any authority over him. So if you're in charge of the maintenance ministry and Ellie's one of your workers, you couldn't say to Ellie, Ellie, this is how you clean the toilet. You could have no authority. That's what it's saying. There is no ifs, ands, or buts there. You see why I hold to it so strictly? It's because people who accuse us of taking it culturally as compromising, they're the ones that are the hypocrites. Because they're accusing us of, you're compromising, you're not doing what it says. No, no, you're not doing what it says. I believe exactly what it says. I know exactly what it says. I've studied the Old Testament culture. I understand what the Jewish women had in the Old Testament. This is exactly what they had. This is exactly what they did. It's exactly what it looked like. If you don't want to do it that way, then leave us alone. 
Because what they want to do, and I've been in two major debates over this because people have saw that we ordain women as elders and deacons, and they come attacking us. <clears throat> We're not antagonistic to them. If you want to treat your women like they're living in 2000, I mean, you know, 2 AD, 2,000 years in the past of antiquity, if you want to treat them like that, that's okay. You do that. We're not going to mess with you, but we're not doing that here. You understand? We're not doing that here. So that's why I went to a debate with Matt Slick on CARM, because he had a cut-and-paste letter on his website that said anybody who doesn't believe in women, in, uh, anybody who affirms women in the ministry, cut-and-paste this and email it to their pastor. And it basically was an open rebuke and a challenge to a debate. And I said, you sent this to the wrong person, dude, because we, we got it on like Donkey Kong. And listen to it. It's over. The debate is done. So either you take it all or you put it in the box of culture. Now here is what we see is not cultural, but here is where Paul makes the reference to how he sees women to be viewed and why he can do what he does. Paul does this in the Bible all the time. He, he should. You should have scripture for why you believe what you believe. So, but a lot of people, and I've talked to people like this too, who don't think that we should preach allegorically, don't understand Paul preached allegorically. When Paul said that Hagar represents the, um, the old covenant and Sarah represents the new covenant, that was allegorical. It was never said in the Old Testament that Hagar represented Mount Sinai and that Sarah uh, represents the new covenant. It never, he, in Galatians, he always used allegorism, al- allegory. That's okay. It's nothing wrong with that. But here's his basis. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, let's just hold on right there. Is that what he said in Romans? Did he say that because Eve sinned, all became sinners? No. So why do I think, do I think he's contradicting himself here? And this is what people would actually say. He's contradicting himself. Who brought the line of sin? Was it the woman who did it? Or was it the man? Or was it both? What, what's he saying here? What I believe he's doing is he's allegorizing. He's saying this is why Jewish people in their mindset don't think the woman should have the same rights as man. Because she was the one who deceived the man. She was the sinner. And then it says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And so I asked Matt Slick, I said, okay. You'll still let them talk, and you'll make all these concessions, and then you'll say, we're the ones that are compromising. Let me ask you a question. Do you preach two different salvation messages then? One to the men that say, men, this is how you get to go to heaven. This is how you're saved. You need to be born again. You need to accept Christ, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and then you're saved. And then women, you need to start having children. That's how you're going to be saved. If you start burying children and then you do all these other things, you'll be saved. See, does that even make any sense? Can I take that literally as a message of salvation today to women? No. What he's doing is he's allegorizing. He's saying just how women sinned in the begin a woman sinned in the beginning because she was tempted, just like how she did that. They can do that today in these cultures. And so we're not going to let them talk. 
We're not going to let them have authority. And we're not going to change the Jewish mindset who believed that these women were less than uh, teenage children, teenage boys. We're not going to change that because that's how they view it. This is how it can be seen. And the way they're saved is just like how Eve was saved by having children and having children. And eventually Jesus came through the line of Mary, uh, through the line of Eve, didn't it say your seed will crush, your offspring will crush his head? He's allegorizing. There's not two salvation messages. There's not one for men and one for women. He's just giving you the reason why he's putting the women in this place. Now, do we leave them in this place? Do we leave women in the place of one, two, whatever, first century A.D., you know? Do we leave them in this place? Do we leave them in a place now where they can't wear gold, they can't wear pearls, they can't have expensive clothes? And who's going to define expensive clothes, by the way? What, is $15 expensive? Is $100 expensive? You know, who's going to define that? So are we going to leave women where they can't wear gold, they can't wear jewelry, they can't even braid their hair? So my daughter in little pigtails, and we start braiding it, there she is a sinner. We can't braid each other's hair. You know, poor thing for all African-Americans, you know, all these African-American women who braid their hair. It's more popular there. All of them are sinners. Are we going to leave them there? Or are we going to say that was cultural? It was cultural because braided hair means nothing about sin. Seeing an African-American woman, that's who I normally see wearing, but it means nothing about a prostitute, sin, nothing. When I braid my daughter's pigtails, whatever, it means nothing about who she is. It meant something back then. Paul made an issue of it, but it means nothing to us here. Secondly, do we leave women in a place of total silence when they learn? That means all of the private schools, because if you ask every Christian, would you prefer all of our, our schools to be Christian again? Would you prefer all of them? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, then they must be in quiet. They must learn in quiet. Just like they did in the Jewish times, there's the women over there. And whenever they got around the young boys... The women, grown women, mothers, got around their teenage sons, and they were learning how to hunt. They were learning how to do agriculture. They were learning how to be men. They would be quiet. Is that how we want them to learn? Is that how we want them to learn in universities, in total silence? No, so we don't leave them there. Number three, do we then say that they can have no authority over a man, that they can't teach a man, that, that a woman could not teach a man science, mathematics, the Bible, Sunday school, any of it? Are we saying that is where we leave them today? They can not, not only can you not talk, you cannot teach in any part of your life or any part if people want to regulate it to the church. Anything in this church you couldn't teach or have authority. So, so can't have a woman administrator. I like to see how many of those Baptist churches have women administrators. I, get, I bet you they have authority over somebody. Come on. So, so see, so I'm saying they all want to change it now to make it fit their little pet doctrine. No, it's either all or nothing, Bubba. Amen. I'm going to change it to all or nothing, Flacco. Come on, Pepe. Or are we going to say that was culture? How about this? Are we now going to start preaching two salvation messages? Okay, men, you got to get born again. Come up here. Come and repent. Okay, women, go into the back right here. You're going to start birthing children. You're going to be saved through childbearing. And any woman who can't have children, we pity you. We pity you. If you can't have a child, God forbid. 
Because remember, Jewish times, you couldn't have a child. You were cursed. Remember all the pain that came because of that belief? The women that thought that they were cursed because they couldn't have a child because different things in their hormones. See, you want to go back to that? You're not saved. You're not even right with God. You're not helping bring the Messiah. You're not doing anything good for us unless you're bearing the children. No, we don't want to believe that. Now, I can't get into a discussion right now on why Jewish people believe that. And I can't get into a discussion about why the Western society stopped believing that. But we woke up this morning in 2010 in a Western society. And the bottom line is we don't believe that gold jewelry and pearls mean you're a prostitute. We don't believe that women need to learn in quietness. They can talk and ask questions. We don't believe that they can't teach and have authority over men. They can be police officers, military, doctors, teachers. We do believe in that. And we don't believe there's a separate salvation for them in childbearing. We believe that they're saved through the blood of Jesus, just like how we're saved, whether they have a child or not. So that's why we leave that scripture and culture. Now that concludes um, that concludes chapter uh, two in our, in our reading. Am I correct? Okay. I just want to make sure. I'm going to go there. Not that I don't believe you. Just want to make sure and go there. There it is. If they continue in faith, love, holiness. With propriety. And once again, a lot of the Baptists are Calvinists. And so right here, she's not even guaranteed salvation. She has to keep doing these things and just hope she'll get saved. And she'll be saved through childbearing if, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. So, so men, I guess in the, in the, the Baptist-Calvinist sense, men are guaranteed salvation by the blood of Jesus, but women have a salvation of works because they're not even guaranteed. So women bear children, have a lot of faith, hope, and love, and just hope you make it. Just hope you make it up there. Now, once again, that last part of the scripture, I believe, is allegory. I believe it's referencing, like he did, Adam and Eve. I believe it's talking about how the Messiah had to come through childbirth, how women had a part of salvation. See, you, you follow, you follow uh, uh, Paul, he talks about how Adam is redeemed through Jesus being the second Adam. And then here he's basically showing how Eve, the woman, is redeemed from her mistake by giving birth to the Messiah. That's all it's saying, my friends. He's just using allegory, and he's talking to a Jewish mindset. And yes, it would have been hard for a Greek-speaking woman who came from a pagan background to be in those services. It would have been hard. It would have been uncomfortable for those people at that time if they were used to the liberty of the Greek society. But I can show you that Paul made concessions for them because there's places where he talks about his women leaders. And he talks about women who are teaching. And he talks about those things even in the Bible. And so does it mean Paul starts contradicting himself? No, it's just Paul was meeting different needs at different times. Like I said, in Galatians, he tells the people, you get circumcised, you might as well just cut, cut your whole thing off because the blood of Jesus means nothing to you. He says that in Galatians, which is about 40 A.D. And then his time with Titus and Timothy, probably just 10, 20 years later, what's he doing? Circumcising Titus and Timothy. What did he do? Emasculate him and say, now to hell with what I wrote in Galatians? No, he's not saying it's either or, it's both and. It's not either you follow the book of Galatians or you follow what I do with Timothy. He's saying you do both. When circumcision comes to take salvation and it comes as a legalistic way of salvation, you don't do it, you don't give in to it, not even for a second. But when circumcision comes as a way of meeting the cultural needs, when circumcision comes as a way of allowing you to reach more people, then you can do it. 
That's what he's saying. When it comes to women, women, when, when, when it hurts the congregation, when it causes confusion, when there's a lot of evil being done through women who are not acting right in your culture, can, can he restrict what you do? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. He can restrict what you do. But when there is liberty, when there is freedom, when there isn't people persecuting you, when there isn't women giving other women a bad reputation, do you have then the freedom to, to do just what men do? Absolutely. Do you? Yes. And now you're going to see that in the Bible. Let me just give you the other paradox, slavery. Doesn't the Bible say that there's, there's neither free nor bond in Christ anymore, that, that, that there's, no, there's no difference? Or why does he say slaves obey his masters? What is he now saying, that we should be taking Kuta Kinte out of the African jungles and enslave them? No. He's saying both and. He's saying where slavery is and where it exists, and there's no way to overturn that culture. If you're a Christian and you're that slave, just serve and be respectful and do the best you can. If you're that slave owner and you have a slave, you treat him as Christ treats you because you're Christ's slave. But then he says over here, if you can be free, be free. Because he says to Philemon, I've set him free. Uh, Onesimus was Philemon's slave. He said, I've set him free. I'm setting him back to you. Don't hold him in bondage. However you treat me, now treat him. So you see, it's both and. Where there are things in culture that are unmovable in those times, you see that the pastoral epistles, they, they, they work within that culture, not to cause an upheaval to where people now just think we're trying to get rid of culture instead of trying to present Christianity. So like if I went to India and I just said, women, you're liberated. Throw off your saris. Start talking to your men during the business times and start working your jobs. You're free. All that would do is bring confusion and mass upheaval, but wouldn't bring the gospel. But if I bring the gospel, the gospel brings the seeds of liberation. And now you're seeing through our churches that they're getting less and less. They're, they're going further and further away from the legalism of their culture through the oppression of their culture. And they're becoming more and more free. Because the same Bible that people accuse us of oppressed the women and the slaves was actually the seeds of liberation in the American culture that is the example to all the world. It was the Christians who led the abolition movement. It was the Christians who were with the women's lib movement. It wasn't just the women you know, burning their bras. It was Christian women who were reading in the Bible that there was a liberation for them. And now just one little last little fear, a little phobia we want to talk about because people say, well, what about homosexuality then and things like that? Homosexuality is not a cultural issue. Homosexuality in the Old Testament was called an abomination. It's called an abomination in the New Testament. It is a behavioral action that is called sin. Women teaching is not called sin. Women having authority is not called sin. Because when we look in the Old Testament, God gave authority to Deborah and an all-male populated leadership. He gave it to Deborah because giving it to a woman is not a sin. So it's not a behavioral sin. It's not the same thing. So whoever tries to say that allowing women to have freedoms is the same as giving homosexuality a, 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 you know, a license in the New Testament is a categorical error. That means you're taking two different categories and you're putting them together to make one statement. Because if that is true, then it's true for everybody who believes in the freedom for slaves. You would also believe in the freedom for homosexuality. So if the Baptist guy looks at me, and this is what Matt Slick said, do you, do you, do you notice the trend that uh, whoever believes in women's rights and lib liberation for the women, 
those denominations also believe in the homosexual movement? I could say to him, too, do you know that people who don't believe in slavery, they also believe in the women's liberation movement. So do you not believe in slavery? Well, no, I don't believe it. Well, then you would not believe in the women's liberation. See, my friends, they try to make a categorical error. Slavery is a different subject. Women is a different subject. Homosexuality is a different subject. These two, women in the ministry and slavery, fit into the same category then as different subjects in the category of culture. Homosexuality fits into the category of a behavioral sin. They're not in the same category. You deal with them each individual, and then you see the categories. Just because I believe in this doesn't mean I believe in that. Because if you want to put homosexuality in this category, then you also got to put it with slavery. That's what I'm trying to say. And thus, if you don't uh, believe, if you believe in slavery, then that would mean you believe in homosexuality. So it's a categorical error. It contradicts itself. Listen to the tape again if you didn't get that. Amen. Now let me give you the points here. Oh, excuse me, reviewing from the Bible what the Bible says about women in the ministry. First of all, go to Galatians 3.28. I'm going to give you three points, just like the Trinity. Three points. When we say the Trinity, we say there is one God, and we prove that. Then point number two, there are three divine persons that claim to be God, and we prove that in the Scripture. And then point number three, these divine persons who claim and act like God, they are all equal, eternal, and coexisting together. The same way I'm going to prove it to you, so I'll, write, I'll give them to you right now for those listening. One, two, three, here it is. There's one salvation for men and women, number one. Number two, or let me say it like this. Number one, the same salvation for men and women. Number two, the same giftings, spiritual giftings for men and women. And number three, the same offices for men and women. Do you get it? There's the same salvation, there is the same spiritual gifting, and there is the same offices. I'm going to go through them, one, two, three, and I'll give you the scriptural references. And you can listen to the debate and see how these things stand up. Just hit debate in our search window on our sermon player, and you'll see women in the ministry debate with a very skilled and qualified debater. Uh, Matt Slick from Carm Ministries, who we still link his website. We love what he does with the cults and all of those things. Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female, for you are all in one Christ, and all one in Christ Jesus. Number one, there is salvation, the same salvation for men and women. So what we talked about in Timothy cannot be taken literally. There is not a different salvation for them. There is not a different salvation for Jews, even though it's okay for them to be circumcised, even though it's okay for them to keep the dietary law, there is not a different salvation for them. And once again, people may say, well, if there's neither male nor female, then that means there can be homosexual relationships because gender doesn't matter. This is not the context. That is a different category. This is not talking about behaviors of men and women. Some people use this scripture to show that men and women can all do the same thing. I do agree with that, but that, this scripture is not saying that. This scripture is simply saying one simple point. Men are saved one way. Women are saved that same way. Jews are saved that same way. Greeks are saved that same way. Slaves are, are saved that same way. And those who are free are saved that same There's one salvation. Jews, Greeks, men, women, slave, and free all get saved that one way. That's it. So do we disagree there? 
Or do we agree? Amen? There is the same salvation. Period. Number two, there is the same spiritual gifts. Acts 2.17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Does he pour it out just on sons? No, he pours it on sons and what? Daughters. That's the end of the discussion. There shouldn't be a discussion after this. I could stay here all day. First of all, subpoint under this. First subpoint is that when the Spirit of the Lord came on the Old Testament people, who did it come upon? The men who were kings, prophets, and priests. Those are the only offices of spiritual gifts to be used in the Old Testament. End of discussion. That same Spirit comes on women. Do you understand? I'm going to say it to you again. In the New Testament, there's just elder and deacon. We're going to get to that in just a second. That's how you use your spiritual gifts. You have to become an elder or a deacon. That's what it says in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. So how do you use all these spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts that Deanna has? How do you use them? You use them through the offices of elder and deacon. Okay, what were the offices to use spiritual gifts? Go through the entire Bible, your entire Bible, in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. What are those three offices? And I could possibly give you one more, which would be judges, but they would be a type of a prophet. Here they are. Kings, priests, and prophets. If you want to put prophets slash judges, there it is. And who are all those people? All men, except for Deborah. Because Deborah is a type and shadow that one day is going to come on everybody. Shakalaka. It's over. Do you understand? That argument is over now. Because to say Griselda has a spiritual gift, well, how is she going to use her spiritual gift? She has to have an office. So people say to me, well, I don't believe in pastors, women being pastors. First of all, you don't even know what you're talking about. Pastor, pastoring is a gift. Women can pastor just like women can teach, just like women can evangelize, just like women can have the prophetic, and just like they can go out and plant churches and be apostolic. The five ministry gifts are not five offices. They're gifts given to everybody. Anytime you shepherd somebody as a Christian, you're using the gift of a pastor. Anytime you go out evangelizing somebody, you're using the gift of an evangelist. Anytime you're teaching somebody, you're using the gift of a teacher. Anytime you're raising up a church and going out being a missionary, which some of the best were women like Corey Tampoon, you're using the gift of an apostle. Sons and daughters have the gifts. Well, how do you use your gifts? Chapter 3 of Timothy tells you, which we don't have time to get into, but it says you must be an elder or you must be a deacon. So number one, women have the same salvation as everybody else, men. Number two, they have the same gifts. So what must they have? Number three, the same offices. Now, all all I have to do is show you one time in the Bible that a woman had an office of an elder and a deacon, and the, and the discussion's over. Put the nail on the coffin. Amen? Coming at you live right now, baby. Here it is, Romans 16, verses 1 through 4. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centuria. 
I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. What is she? A servant of the Lord. What is that word in the Greek? Dikanos. What is one of the offices? Deacon. You might say, Pastor, you're doing some fancy footwork with the Greek. My friends, your Bible was written in Greek. This is not fancy footwork. Paul calls himself a servant of the Lord all throughout the New Testament. This is not just saying, I serve and I do cool things. She was being called a deacon. And some translations actually put deaconess, which there is no such thing. There is not like a female deacon and a male deacon. You're either a deacon or you're not. You're either an elder or you're not. Now here is Douglas Moo, a Baptist Ph.D. theologian, and I had to read his book in Liberty Baptist on this subject, on the book of Romans. Here's what he says. In verses 1 and 2, Paul commends a Christian from Centuria, a seaport next to Corinth, who shortly will be traveling to Rome. He calls her, quote, servant of the church, quote, and claims that she has been, quote, a great help to many people, including me, quote, the former designation does not necessarily prove very much, quote, servant, econos, unquote, is a term used of believers in the New Testament, which is true. Anybody could be called a servant. It may have that sense here. It may have that sense here. That's what he says. But now look at this. But the addition of the phrase, quote, of the church, unquote, makes it more likely that Dikanos here is an official title designating Phoebe as a, quote, unquote, deacon. The Baptist has to admit this woman had the office of a deacon. Why? Because the scripture doesn't just say she was serving in the church. In the Greek there, the, the, uh, the serving is she is of the church. She has leadership in the church. Do you know how one other way to interpret this is? Not taking away from her, but even giving her more credit. This will blow you away. I ask you to receive her in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Some people say she had a part in mentoring Paul for those three years he was in Damascus. Because she not only served as a deacon in the office to that church, but she served as a deacon in the office to me. I even like taking it that way. Not that I can just make up the interpretation, but I believe that's why he says it that way. Because she was in the Lord before him. She has served him as a deacon. So did I not just show you that they have the office? Now, are they popular in the New Testament? No, because Paul mostly is dealing with times and places where he cannot have people in these offices. But are they seen in those offices? Absolutely. Then you just go on down to the next verse. I ask you to, uh, excuse me, verse 3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Does he say just greet Aquila, the man? No, greet Priscilla. And by putting the woman's name first, sometimes that can mean things that's, you know, grabbing at straws. But the bottom line is they were a team together. So why is it we believe that husbands and wives should be ordained into the same office as an elder or a deacon? Because that's how they are talked to together. And how do I know that to be true? Because when you go to the time 
of Priscilla and Aquila. Go to Acts 18.26, talking about Apollos. He began to speak boldly, talking about Apollos. He's speaking boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard them, heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Who did it? Just Aquila? Did Aquila just say, Apollos, you come with me? Or was Priscilla there with them? Was Priscilla there when Aquila was having the conversation? Do we know who was leading it? Not at all. But they were both there. And they were both pouring into him. And it was both their homes. There is no male um, superiority here. It is a couple working together, teaching a man, Apollos, how to understand more adequately the things of God, which I believe there is referencing to the baptism of the Holy Ghost, the Shikabunda. That's what I just personally, I couldn't prove it, but I personally believe that's what's going on here. So, my friends, the discussion is now over. Does Metro Praise believe in women in the ministry? Absolutely. Do we believe that women have the same offices? Yes. Because how else are they going to use their gifts? And that's why I said to Matt Slick when I was debating with him, I said, okay, let's, let's say you don't believe an elder or a deacon can be a woman because it says the husband of but one wife, even though that would mean no single people could do it anyway, but, but not to get into that. So, so they have to be a man, and it's all ma- masculine terms, you know, a man this, a man that, elder and deacon. Okay, if they can't be an elder and deacon, how do they use their gifts then? Everybody in the Old Testament had an office to use their gift. Prophet, king, or priest. How are they going to use their gifts? What, do we need to write another book of the Bible now? Well, if a woman wants to become a Sunday school teacher, she has to do this, this, and this. Well, she, no, no, no. Your little, your little uh, church manual goes to hell with the devil. I could care less what your church manual says. I could care less what my church manual says. If it don't say it in the Bible, then that means they shut up, sit down, and learn in submission. And that's what they do. And if your wife has a problem with it, have her go home and ask you about when I get done rebuking her. Because I won't let her talk. That's what I've said to people before. Well, we don't like your wife being the pastor with you. Now, a woman told me that. I said, I won't talk to you anymore. Shut up. Give me your husband. I'll talk to him. He'll explain it to you. And I want you to be in silence when I talk to you from here on out. That woman got so mad, she her husband, how dare you talk to my, my wife that way. No, she wants to live by the Bible. She wants to put the Bible on me, tell her to be quiet. I have authority over her. I will teach her. And then you can explain to her what I told you to teach her. You see what I'm saying? They're hypocrites. And they're antagonistic. And what they don't understand is about 60, 70% of the world is being converted by women right now. Some of the strongest leaders in the underground church in China are women. Some of the strongest leaders in South Korea are women. And every time you look at church growth, whether it's in the Methodist movement, whether it was with the Mulvarians, whether it was in our modern-day movement with Corey Ten Boon, when the women got a hold of missions and we gave them a place in the ministry, the churches explode. You oppress the women, you kill the movement of God. Women and men, sons and daughters, they're 50% of what we're doing here. And in population, they're already 60%. They outnumber men on the planet. So you're losing 60% of your workforce, your labor force. And the only person that wants to shut up and sit down a woman in this culture today is the devil, and he's a liar. And anybody who believes that can just tell the devil to take his lie back to hell where it came from. Now, do we love you? Yes, we do. But we're not going to stand for that. Amen? And maybe we should discuss whether or not we put this up on the SUM website. (laughs) So if tomorrow SUM has changed its name and we're doing it a different way, you'll know why. We've been fired.
pastor's been fired. That's okay. He won't back down. Praise the Lord. Okay, here we go. Now it's good. I'm going to read now just I'm going to read now from the assemblies of God because we stand with them. This is what the assemblies of God says on their website because we believe it's actually the way they do. The assemblies of God has been blessed and must continue to be blessed by the ministry of God's gifted and commissioned daughters. The Bible repeatedly affirms that God pours out his spirit of both on both men and women and thereby thereby gifts both for sexes for ministry in his church. Thereby gifts for both sexes for ministry in his church. Therefore, we continue to affirm the gifts of women in ministry and spiritual leadership. Surely the enormous challenge of the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations requires the full deployment of all God's spirit-gifted ministers, both men and women. Will you stand to your feet and give the Lord a hand clap for that? Amen. Praise God. Come on. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.